0: You're listening to Podcast on Fire. It's Asian cinema in a podcast
1: with your hosts,
0: the magnificent trio of Stu, Ken, and Mike. My name is August Ragoni. I'm a lifelong fan of uh, Japanese cinema, in particular Cinema the Fantastic. I'm also the author of uh, Eiji Tsuburaya, Master of Monsters, the first biography about the man who created the special effects genre in Japan, uh, known as Tokusatsu, uh, which was published by Chronicle Books in 2007.
2: And uh, it was the first biography, and uh, what was your... First introduction to to Tuksatsu Kaiju
0: Well, um, my first introduction uh, well I was a child uh, growing up in the United States in in the uh, in the 60s um, monsters were on television all of the time. Hmm. Uh, this is when syndication packages were very inexpensive for te- local television stations to purchase in the United States. so, and and a lot of the studios sold off these packages of these monster films, which were usually kind of generally disregarded, for very low prices. So these things would be played constantly. And they did get high ratings on television. So as a child, uh, which is kind of universal around the world, boys always like dinosaurs, or, or and then come to grow and, and love monsters once they discover monsters. And that's sort of how that started for me. Um, it was when I saw... You know, I had seen Godzilla films before this point, and intermittently, along with everything else, and I always liked the big dragon, monster, dinosaur-type characters, mm. but truly the epiphany was when I discovered Ultraman, uh, the television series created by A.G. Tsuburaya, the same man who did the special effects for the original Godzilla in many of those films, um, and that was on television every day here in San Francisco, uh, Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock, and uh, it just completely permeated my brain and destroyed me and uh, poisoned <laughs> me and made me uh, obsessed. In, into the, they owe me a lot, I think, or because I've spent the better part of my life spending money on this stuff. <laughs> Here's, Give me my my Did you Here's my money Japan. Here's
2: my bill. Pay me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's how it started. It was uh, Ultraman that really kicked everything off
2: therefore it uh, it applies to ask uh, like uh, what have have you figured it, figured out why this whole genre specifically speaks to you and and what does it represent to you and was what, what does it do to you kind of a thing is it easy to nail down
0: well you know it's i think everybody has a different you know answer um in terms of specifically the the Japanese monster genre mm. um now what separated them in my mind as a child uh from american style monsters or even similar types of movies or representations of giant monsters you know i can't exactly you know point it down uh pin it down to one particular one particular thing it's a series of things um i think in terms of uh ultraman perhaps since it was on every day i was being indoctrinated on a daily basis. Um, the episodes for the time it was made, the series was very kinetic for 1966. Lots of fast-cutting. A lot of the guys that worked on these shows uh, came from uh, experimental film right. or television, um, and they were just doing really guerrilla filmmaking um, before they uh, came on. And they were all a bunch of young guys, like in their 20s, uh, working on this show under the supervision of you know, this man uh, who was considered as god of special effects in Japan.
1: Mm.
0: And I think it was like a combination of, sort of this kinetic energy, uh, the editing, the photography, these, these crazy-looking monsters, and I mean that in a good way, mm-hmm. that were unusual from uh, the Western style of monster. And also, uh, perhaps the soundtrack contributed a lot to that, which was very jazz-influenced mm. and was different than what was the kind of cookie-cutter a uh, very low budget thing that was usually made for American children by, you know, the American companies that uh, were generally doing cartoons. This had a uh, a quality to it but that was all almost cinema quality. Um, I think that maybe that may have been a big part of what made those things stand out in my mind. Um in terms of like Godzilla, uh, you know, being interested in those monsters from Ultraman, Godzilla was like sort of this natural progression because it was seamless, because it was made by the same people virtually, so the textures were very, very similar. So it just kind of carried over, and then I just narrowed my focus as a child just to Japanese monsters, mm. much to the consternation of my school teachers, um, because it became you know pretty obsessive. Where that's all I wanted to talk about or write about, or you know, I was dragging my eight mm projector to school when they we did a show-and-tell I would bring Ghidra the three-headed monster on Super 8 good choice uh, <laughs> things like this and uh, I think one time my my one of my teachers who was very liberal uh, teacher he was uh, sort of I guess what you would call uh, a hippie basically right. very very open-minded liberal guy who didn't really teach a structured class uh, It was very loose but when they had a parents teachers meeting with my mother um, he said, you know, I'm concerned about your son because he seems really obsessed and I don't think he's going to uh, with, these, with Godzilla. And it doesn't seem like he may not, not amount to much. <laughs> well, my mother gave him an earful. <laughs> wow. And because uh, she told me what he said, you know, like, after the meeting, you know, after this, this parent's teacher's thing, but she told me and I was kind of shocked, you know. Like, but, uh, you know, she said I gave him an earful and I told him, you know, I support any interest my son has Lesser. and I also what helped me was the support of my mother uh my the rest of my family you know just thought I was nuts <laughs> mm. <laughs> but it's been it's been a fun life, you know being you know surrounded with these monsters and now you know a lot of people have come out of the closet, not for just Japanese monsters but as well as for their love of monster movies in general. Mm. It's very much more mainstream now and uh Around the world, but, you know, especially in the United States where it's not... It used to be sort of considered... You know, it was really considered kid stuff. And you would have to kind of like... That was your own private interest. And you couldn't talk to the guys down at the bar about it. Uh. You know? Now everybody sports tattoos. Everybody's familiar with this stuff. And it's cool to like monsters now. It took long enough. Yeah, (laughs) I
2: mean... I I think that um, as a child, if you find a passion... Uh, if it's only initially about uh, watching the movies you know, right. like being interested in them and not knowing that you once uh, later in life are going to write about them uh, I, I think you're at your most vulnerable at that time and uh, uh, to, to survive without any support from anyone uh, you know that, that's possible surely but uh, bless you that you had a mother that uh, uh, treated that interest like she did you know, she she didn't see apparently that uh, uh, you know, you know, you know, she communicated with you surely and uh, saw that and knew that it's not uh, it's not uh, it's not harmful in any way. I mean, uh, it, right? Not n- not violent movies uh, uh, either to watch. You know, it's a uh, cartoony movies to watch. It's not the uh, X-rated material you're you're obsessed right. with. You know, so, uh, uh, so so once you get past the hurdle of being a child. Uh, a lot of things open up with uh, with that passion. I mean, I, I encountered it myself with mm-hmm. you know pe- people complaining about you. You just sit inside and watch movies all day, and uh, <laughs> the, and, and and to to an extent, yeah, I did. And uh, if it was suddenly out, I choose to watch a movie. But uh, you know, I'm 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 at the point where I'm at now where I where I perhaps can do something with that uh, because I write so much and things like that. So. Get, get past the hurdle of being a child, and uh, and uh, then dealing with adults later. It's uh, probably the easiest thing, you know. So right. can, you can deflect, uh, uh, you can deflect adults' way of looking at it, you know. So, right, and, 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 and nowadays the, you don't have to, as you said, you know.
0: Right, exactly. And you know, the paradox is, is that, you know, uh, when I was when I was, you know, a teenager, I got interested in other things, like normal teenage interests and music and. You know rock and roll and going out to nightclubs, and that became a big part of my life as well
1: mm.
0: and but you know i had so I had a lot of stuff to do, so I was never bored and I think one of the reasons why my mother supported it because you know I could have been going around and getting into trouble right. and uh, and uh, you know getting into drugs and, and and things like that that you know should be something that adults someone who's of a mature age, if they want to indulge. You know, at least they're mature about it. Hmm. You know, as opposed to you know children just getting into trouble and then getting in trouble with the law and and all that, which you know I did see you know uh, with a lot of classmates, uh, and uh, which is unfortunate. But right. uh, you know, I, I kind of stayed focused. <laughs> I stayed focused on this, and there is a, you can like girls and monsters at the same time. Andy, they're not. <laughs> That's a cool movie. Vegas. <laughs> Yes, there's no, there's they're not mutually exclusive, and you know, yeah, as you said, you know, things have changed, and uh, you know, it's more acceptable now, and even, you know, even girls openly say they like monsters. Yeah. So wow. you know, it's it's a lot different. It's a lot different now, but uh, it's it's definitely it's definitely a good thing. But sometimes you feel like, you know, am I so special anymore? <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: uh, do, do you remember
2: your? Uh... Your first um, cinema viewing of a uh, of um, a movie of this kind?
0: Well, I don't remember the first one, but my mother told me that the very first one was uh, a film known as uh, Mothra versus Godzilla from 1964, right. which was shown in the United States as Godzilla versus the Thing. And my mother and my aunt, um, my mother is kind of to bl- also to blame for my monster obsession in a way because. <laughs> My mother and uh, her twin sister uh, loved horror films, and they would go and go to the old drive-in. And back in and those days, they would show, you know, marathons of you know, three or four movies, you know, all night till the sun comes up. And you know, they took me because they didn't, you know, didn't need a babysitter. Just put me in the car; I'll fall asleep. <laughs> so I was seeing these monster movies as a, even as a baby. And so my mother said that the first Godzilla movie I went, I saw was Godzilla vs. the Thing, but I was probably about three or four years old. Right. Okay. So I don't remember it. I remember images. I do remember. I have recall of images on the, you know, the drive-in screen from a very young age, where I was before I went to kindergarten. Even. Hmm. I very distinctly remember some very shocking images. So, yeah. my parents didn't think that you know, you know, my mind would be would be damaged too badly <laughs> by seeing. You know, vampires, the Hammer films, and, and these all these different things. But, uh, you know, that sort of started. So Godzilla vs. The Thing was the, the first film I allegedly saw. Mm. Um, I saw most of them growing up, like I said earlier, on television. And then uh, once I was old enough to beg my parents to start, you know, bargaining with my parents on going to movies, mm. You know, when I was growing up, you know, you went with your parents to the movies to what they picked. Nowadays in the United States, you know, it's like children tell the parents what they want to see, even at a young age. Right. And the parents are sort of forced into taking them to see these kids' movies. Well, that didn't happen to me, so I didn't go go to kids' movies. My parents didn't take me to kids' movies. I mean, I think I saw Bambi as a child, and that traumatized me, so I think that was enough, (laughs) you know, for them. And the monster movies were safer, because I actually was... You know, hypnotized by the monsters. You know, I was, I felt some sort of compassion to the monster. Mm. Um, but as soon as I was, you know, able to start going and 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 negotiating, I started seeing more of these films in, in the theater. And then in that time in San Francisco, where we're talking about the early seventies, there were still a number of theaters in San Francisco. Uh, and also theaters that were second run or third run theaters where they would do these packages of three or four movies in a row and they would change weekly. And some of them would be nothing but genre films. So there was, this, there was a lot of stuff on television all the time. Local television, on, even though we only had back in those days like maybe five or six local channels.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They all had horror monster movies. All of them. And they competed with each other. So we had, and then we had these monster weeks. Like the local ABC uh, network affiliate uh, across the country, all the local affiliates would do the monster week, and it would be like the afternoon movie, and there would be ads in the TV guide, and all the kids at school would get excited and you know see the ad. Look, King Kong versus Godzilla is going to be on Monday night, uh, yeah. and everyone at school would you know talk about it before, and then that night everybody's watching it, and the next day in school everybody's talking about it. But there were also these theaters that were doing three or four films, which also broadened my education, Um, because if I wanted to see, and I like seeing all of the movies that I want to, Mm. but, you know, if there was a Japanese movie in there, of course, I had to go see it. Um, But I got educated on wider films, because I sat through all the movies, and sometimes, maybe I should admit this, sometimes I wanted to see the movie again, so I would have to sit through all the other movies to (laughs) see that one movie again. (laughs) Um, and sometimes I, would, I was seeing these movies that I learned, you know, I, I was loving at that time as well, mm. um, just not as intensely as the Japanese films. But I remember in particular one of these triple features was uh, The Projected Man, the British film.
1: Right, right.
0: The Island of Terror, Terence Fisher, with Peter Cushing. And Frankenstein Conquers the World, Yeah, the Shiro Honda's film. That was a triple feature. Now, I know people who would kill, you know, to see these kind of things. And, you know, they had the movie posters up outside in the theater and the movie stills and all the ballyhoo. And you'd go in, sit down, and I remember seeing the black and white still with Frankenstein fighting the octopus. And, you know, i sit, watch the whole movie, and i go, I never left during the entire 98 minutes. You know, when I was a kid, I wouldn't run around the theater. I was, I was in love with movies, and yeah. I, yeah. the kids are running around, and I felt... The kids should shut up and sit down. Was <laughs> like six, you know, seven, eight years old, <laughs> ten years old, going like, "What are they doing running around?" There's a god darn movie on, <laughs> you know, and um, and I mean, it was these kind of like triple features, and there were things like, you know, Latitude Zero, Taste the Blood of Dracula, and Gidra the Three Headed Monster. It was mind blowing. This and even things like really rare Mario Baba movies, like that are rare now, like uh, the Wonders of Aladdin. Right, you know, right. this Euro spy movies like, you know, uh, Super Agent Dragon and, and, you know, they would mix all these genres up. And I just saw all this stuff. But at the same time, we had TV. It was like, why didn't I just go insane right there? I have no <laughs> idea. I was thinking,
2: I was thinking, uh, thinking uh, did they, uh, pr- yeah. even in the 60s, yeah, try and promote uh, movies oh, like yeah, Mothra? Like- if you have a sort of a trailer for it, like a horror film, a tense film, or, or by then they promoted it as it should be promoted. as the kind of, movies, right. kind of movie it is.
0: Yeah, they they really did, uh, you know, at first, you know, the first few films that, that Toho produced were very, you know, sort of very straightforward. Uh, and maybe even a little more serious than some of the American counterparts.
1: Mm.
0: In terms of its approach and execution. Um People would probably debate about the special effects, but by and large, those films had bigger special effects and more special effects scenes than the average American science fiction horror film of the late 50s. Mm. Because, you know, they really cranked those out here in the United States, and not all of them were great, even though some of them had great scripts or they might have great actors in it. You know, the special effects or the payoff would be very minimal. Maybe you'd get to see the monster very briefly a few times. Mm. You know, I think the only real rival, you know, and I think everyone will, you know, debate whether he's the superior, was Harryhausen, but right. you know, Harryhausen could only put out so many films. It took him about a year or two to make one movie.
2: Yeah, based on that technique, yeah.
0: But as far as, like, the promotion in the United States, the promotion worked very well, um, and then, you know, uh, the, the film started changing and the promotion started changing sort of with them with Mm. Mothra, which is a really good benchmark film. Right. Um and I just to interject here too as well, uh in nineteen fifty seven there was a magazine called Box Office. Uh that was uh you know sent out to distributors uh and exhibitors
1: Mm.
0: of films. This is not for the public, this was for theater owners and exhibitors. And uh when they tallied up the amount, the highest grossing what they call the highest-grossing science fiction picture of 1957. That was the one that had the most rentals and it made the most at the box office, was Rodin. Wow. <laughs> in the United States. It, was, it beat out all the other films of 1957 in that genre. These films were very popular. Um, and it also brings up a question of, you know, so close after World War II, you know, that these films had, you know, had Americans going to them and attending them, and they were actually getting to see uh, a glimpse into Japanese life, which was also another element that, you know, was attractive to me. Mm-hmm. Is this, this other world, you know, this other country called Japan. And, and just a look into that, into their world. Um, and then, you know, yes, with Mothra, the advertising started changing, where they started gearing it everything a little more to fantasy, uh, that's sort of how the film started to become after after that point. Mothra was really sort of the culmination of everything Toho had been doing up until that point, and they added the fantasy milieu to it, um, and it worked very 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 tremendously well. Um, and that Mothra was another big hit in the United States as well, and in fact. Uh, when Mothra was pre-sold to Columbia Pictures in the United States by Toho, they were interested in picking up the picture just when Toho announced they were producing it. Right. Columbia Pictures had had success with releasing uh, the H-Man and Battle in Outer Space, uh, rec- uh, respectively, uh, from Toho, hmm. and so they wanted a piece of Mothra. In fact, they financed uh, the entire final chapter of the film.
1: Really.
3: The
0: film had a little more of a modest ending originally. Where uh, the bad guys have the twin fairies and they they escape in a small plane, a Cessna, and they manage to they run out of uh, fuel and Mothra's coming after them and they kind of crash and the heroes are chasing after them. Everything's set in the in northern Japan, mm. and then the bad guys meet their end. The fairies are rescued. Mothra flies off and uh, you know with the fairies to go back to Infant Island in peace. And Columbia, the president of Columbia Pictures, William Schwartz, uh, also in, in Japan, they made an announcement how this was sort of a co-production, not a co-production really, but how it was a kind of a co-investment
1: uh,
0: that they were doing with the pitcher Mothra. And what they had done is said, we need a bigger ending. <laughs> <laughs> we want a bigger, more spectacular ending, and since we're showing this in the United States and distributing it outside of the United States. Um, please add some Mahap Mothra attack in American City, or Western City. And they just rewrote the, you know, the film. Um, they had already shot the ending, the original ending I just told you about. They mm. had shot that first. So Toho had to discard that. Oh. And Columbia gave them the money and said, film a new ending, here's some money. Here's <laughs> the budget for that. Just give it to us. We want to have a big spectacle ending, and they, I mean, not that the original film, the way Toho shot it, would have been less spectacle, but they put spectac- spectacle, upon spectacle <laughs> with this sort of high interest from the United States. You know, and a company like Columbia Pictures isn't going to do something like this unless these these pictures made film, you know, made a lot of money for them. Mm. And uh, these movies were big hits all over the United States. So I think it was like later on as they became more, you know. Uh, more kind of comfortable not comfortable when that when that whole era of filmmaking kind of ended Mm. uh in the late 60s i think people started and and also the cynicism started creeping in with things like you know the kennedy assassinations martin luther king Mm. um the vietnam war you know people started becoming more cynical and uh and i think that they just those kind of films fell out of favor um and people started making fun of making fun of them, you know. Mm. Especially after films like 2001, when which was really the breakthrough film that had fantastic scenes mm. uh, that were not could not be done in reality, uh, made to look realistic, 100% realistic. And mm. uh, A.G. Tsuburaya's philosophy in making all of these films was uh, he had the intricate miniatures, and he did all of. These elaborate effects, and there's lots of effect scenes in all in all of his pictures, and but his philosophy was, I don't want to make reality because reality is boring. Mm. He goes, I want to make fantasy, and that's what he did with all of his pictures, is he made them look fantastic. It was it was m- more that look how cool this scene is as opposed to you know trying to make it look real. Mm. Because he also did the opposite when he made war pictures and these other these other types of films where there were more realistic effects and including he did the effects for Kira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood with the moving forest. Right. Which uh, was you know partly miniature. Uh, even the audio commentators in the American DVD from the Criterion Collection didn't know it was a miniature effect, some of it. Really? And they just said, "Oh, they got the, these guys, you know, on the set, and it's all full size, and they they're moving, and there's all these actors, these technicians, moving the trees, and there are behind-the-scenes photographs showing Subaraia shooting the miniature work." <laughs> so he could he could do both things. When he did the monster films, he preferred to make them fantastic. As he got a little older, um, he was 50 when he made Godzilla, and he had already been a top cinematographer since the silent era in japan he started in, his, in the film industry as a camera operator in 1918 the 1919 rather at the age of 18 and became a very respected cinematographer by the 30s who had a lot of clout he saw king kong became ex- obsessed with special effects and then moved his career more towards that he had the power to be able to change his career in the industry as uh, and uh... But as he got uh, as he started doing these pictures like Godzilla and Rodan and Mothra and so forth, and then he started getting into the the early to mid '60s, the biggest audience for these things started becoming children. Really, uh, he had one big hit series called Ultra Q, hmm. which was sort of uh, you know a a cross between Godzilla and the Twilight Zone, uh, with a dash, or, or rather the Outer Limits, with a dash of the Twilight Zone.
2: Right. right.
0: And. The biggest audience for that was children, and he started changing his philosophy about the violence in his films, and started making them a little more fantastic. But it's still, with that being said, that this all happened in 1966. Uh, in in those years, like 65, 67, it still doesn't, compl- it, it still doesn't explain War of the Gargantuas, and the human eating right. from that <laughs> film. But uh, you know, so, but he did, he did, you know. He, he wanted to have more fantasy in his films was the, uh, the point, really. Uh, while other studios who came aboard and started doing their own monster films like Gamera and so forth, you know, they wanted to follow that pattern of, of just making these things fantastical. And also, you know their monsters can be just completely uh, uh, fantastic and, and not really based in reality, especially in, in terms of the uh, Gamera films. Uh, because the philosophy still comes from Shinto, you know, where, you know, anything can be alive. Anything has, everything has potential for life, you know, a pencil, a glass of water, a rock. So it's, it's this kind of philosophy and this kind of uh, culture that has created these, you know, fantastic monsters that are completely different than, you know, almost anything in, in, Western culture.
2: Yeah, exactly. You touched upon this a little bit as you were experiencing these uh, movies um, all throughout your childhood and teenage years. But uh, was there any time where you thought it was hard to keep up with what Toho and the other studios were uh, churning out, or, or, or yeah. it, was, it was rather easy, more rather natural?
0: Well, it was a lot. It was it was pretty natural because when you're, you know, at that age where. Uh, like when some children become obsessed with sports or a particular thing. You absorb facts and figures and with a voraciousness that's uh, kind of almost, you know, uh, uh, superhuman. Hmm. And I've found that as I am getting older, you know, um, and I'm not that old, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, the point of the matter is is that you know, I'm starting to... I used to look forward, like in the 90s, I was really looking forward to all the new stuff Toho was making. Right. And then, of course, then Daae did the new Gamera films. Uh, and, but in, in retrospect, looking back at the 1990s films, I started feeling that... I started looking further back. I didn't feel that those movies were aged well. Hmm. And I kept looking back to the older films and going like, wow, these, you know, those all still stand up. And with all this new stuff that's coming out, and when I got into this as a kid, I started discovering all this stuff I couldn't see on TV. It wasn't distributed in the United States by going to local we in San Francisco, we have uh, Japantown. Mm-hmm. and I would go to these local bookshops, and, you know, this is before the VCR. And you know, all I had were these children's magazines and these picture books and toys. and I had to and, and records. Mm. You know, the theme songs and things like this. So I had to imagine in my head what these shows would look like, you know, as a child. But I absorbed all the characters, who they are, what they are. I'm having a lot more trouble now trying to keep up now Mm. with the modern stuff because I'm losing interest in some of it. Right. I'm not losing interest in what I already love, Mm. what has come before. It just seems the newer stuff, it's, it's losing me in a way. And people that I've talked to who have been into this uh, long enough, uh, and as long as I have been, or, or you know, within a reasonable you know, like 20 years or so, you know, a lot of them are, are, you know, are having trouble you know, keeping up. And now, which is strange because the availability is so easy, it's BitTorrents, downloads, mm. you know, even YouTube, before the videos get yanked. You know?
2: yeah exactly
0: and things like this they're very it's very accessible it's a lot more accessible, and it's accessible to everybody because a lot of there's a lot of interested young fans with a big passion, like fans in their early twenties that are doing subtitling right and and these things to make it more accessible to people. Uh, there was this very uh there was this wall uh, that existed in the United States uh, in the nineties where you know, we had a big anime explosion in the United States in the 80s, mm. and that became very popular. And it was totally different than what was happening in Europe, because in Europe, everybody got to see this stuff on television. Right. You know, it was dubbed into their local language. Uh, it was, you know, a hot topic at school. This, had, this started as an underground thing, like somebody going to a science fiction convention and going, hey, we've got this great, crazy stuff. I've got a VCR. Give us a room. We want to show this. But this, this fandom grew out of this, where these people, where these fans had to sit and watch these things in Japanese uh, without the benefit of any translation, and they really created this huge snowball effect, and it, and it turned into an industry in the United States. Mm. But like in the 1990s, no one who was interested, even though they were intensely interested in Japanese things as a result of being so deep into anime, that they did weren't interested at all in live-action film, you know, be it Kurosawa mm. or Godzilla. They really didn't care. Um, slowly, this has been changing, and you'll see some representation at conventions. You'll see someone uh, in the United States, you'll see someone in a costume from a more recent character, mm. uh, like one of the more recent Common Rider characters or whatnot, and people will know what it is. And you would say maybe that's not unremarkable at something like, you know, the San Diego Comic-Con, mm, yeah. which is like the biggest convention in the United States. Uh, but I find it remarkable that someone will walk by and go, Kamen Rider Capito, you, know? <laughs> you know. They'll know the character and shout it out. Yeah. And that, that is, in a way, it's scary and it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Because before I had this whole secret world, even if I went to a science fiction convention, I had a whole secret world that nobody cared about except yeah. me. Yeah. You know, and it's a lot more familiar. It's, it's, good, it's good in a lot of ways. And it's not bad at all. But, you know, it's, 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 it's an interesting experience. But I'm having trouble now trying to keep up with, with everything. And I, I just, what it is, it's not so much that it's new stuff, and I just can't keep up with it is uh, I don't like the approach of some of the newer shows. Right. You know, in terms of, like, the Japanese superhero, uh, they've been, you know, uh, demasculated. Mm. So they're all pretty boys with, like, you know, $150 hairstyles,
1: Mm.
0: and they're running around in very trendy clothes. And it's like, wow, you just spent all that money on your clothes and you're going to roll around on the ground and fight a monster. Mm. You're going to (laughs) ruin your clothes. And the heroes I grew up with, like the character of Ultraman, you know, he was, like, in this paramilitary organization. You know, he had a uniform. Uh, so, you know, he was action-ready. Um, and then the heroes from the 70s, man, those guys were just, like, laid-back, cool cats. <laughs> you know, they wore jeans, and they wore, you know, they wore, like, maybe, you know, some trendy shirt of the time. Yeah. But they weren't, they weren't as polished and coiffed. You know, as mm. as they are now, everybody's like a culture superhero now. You know, in Japan, and I find that kind of annoying. Yeah. And and a lot of the characters have succumbed, and the writing is changed. And that's also because all the old writers who wrote all the other older shows in the seventies and in eighties, the guys who wrote for anime also wrote for live action. They wrote for cop dramas. They wrote for samurai adventures. They wrote everything. They wrote motion pictures and television shows, and they wrote every genre. So these were experienced writers who just knew how to make good stories mm. and create good characters. And uh, and the generation has changed, where you know they're hiring, you know younger writers that usually that grew up as anime fans or they grew up as uh, through the anime industry, and it, it's just different. It's just different. Uh. And uh, I hope I hope that trend changes where they have. You know, real more, you know, less. It's great to have female superheroes and female and strong female characters in the shows, but it's not good when those strong female characters are played by men. <laughs> 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 they're supposed to be guy characters, you know. Yeah. They're not supposed to be like you know spitting on the street and going like, "Hey, baby, hey, yeah, I'm a tough exactly. superhero guy," like in the stereotype. But they're just too they. They're like they're all like in their glamour. They're it's it's sort of like they're all in a glam rock band. So uh ouch. It's just it it's, it's just, the stories are still sometimes cool, what the characters do sometimes they throw in slapstick comedy out of left field. Uh. And it just it's it's too much uh it too much of it takes you out. It pulls you out as you're watching it, you know. You're not in it. You get pulled out of it. So, I don't know. I hope that trend changes, but uh I still try to keep up with them, but there's so much stuff coming out, and and there's all these small directors. Speaking of Kaijuaga, that are doing their own little films that sometimes independent little independent films that do get theatrical release, mm. that just kind of glide right under the radar a little bit. Mm. And uh, you know there are things like Gahara, which was a NHK sort of a mini movie, a 15 minute mini movie that used uh, Akira Ifukube music. Mm. It was kind of a parody of the genre, but it was shot very well, and the special effects were great. Um, and there's all these other little independent productions uh, cropping up. In fact, a group of Japanese uh, professional special effects people decided that they wanted to do uh, Ray Bradbury's The Foghorn mm. as a literal you know, interpretation, but set in Japan. Uh, and they're making it a dramatic film, and they shot a small film, but they can't do anything with it because they don't have the rights to it. Right. <laughs> but, but these, and they're trying now to negotiate the rights so they can kind of get it out there and get people to see it. Mm. But uh, it's called The Foghorn, and uh, they're doing all these guys are coming up. These guys, there were, there were a bunch of guys coming up in the 80s that wanted to do big monster films, but you know, in Japan at that time, it was all about anime. Mm. Uh, a lot of these guys would uh work work in anime and then try to do their kaiju ega fantasies in the anime mm. and they would work something in some of those projects back in the 80s very few directors got through you know you had like Shusuke Kaneko who did the Gamera trilogy right uh and did GMK for Toho uh which some people consider the best of the you know Godzilla films made in the last 15 years mm. or 20 years even um uh, and and so on, and all the, but no one has really, you know, broke through that hurdle, that ceiling, you know, uh, in Japanese filmmaking now, where you know it's budget versus audience expectation, and then the overlooming shadow of American film. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: fortunately, American films are losing, and I say fortunately, American <laughs> films are losing footing at the Japanese box office, mm. which means that Japanese producers are looking at. Well, now we really have to kind of step up the game with Japanese movies for Japanese audience mm. before they were being very lazy or they're very, being very tight-fisted with their money, because Japanese domestic pictures didn't have much of a return. You know, and even those special, big special effects films would not perform as expected, so, you know, back in the '90s. But uh, you know, these, these guys are still making you know, new works, they're doing these smaller independent films. And, you know, uh, I'm not completely, you know, a purist where they have to still film the special effects the same way they did them in 1954 Mm. or 1966. You know, a lot of these guys are incorporating the traditional Japanese effects, which they consider, um, you know, a traditional handcraft now. Mm. They do consider it a traditional art. The art of Japanese special effects is considered by filmmakers in Japan a traditional art but they're combining that with CGI or with modern technologies that they are getting better adept at uh, in terms of being uh, able to afford you know, the hardware and software to be able to compete with the level of what's being done in the United States. Um, and But they're turning out these nice films that have consistent effects work. It's I'm trying to really follow that. Mm. Um, I don't like everything I see. But I'm glad someone's doing it, because it just shows that this, you know, 50 years on, 55 years on, Mm. you know, that that they're still making monster movies in Japan, whether they're small films or television. Uh, But I think another, you know, another era might one day come. It's going to really depend on, you know, the Japanese audience's tastes before the Japanese really invest in making a big budget picture. Mm. Um. Although, you know, the opposite effect might occur as Legendary Pictures, the American company, that just recently had a big hit uh, with uh, Trick or Treat, right, which was yeah. a film that almost got buried. Hmm. Um, and they're interested now in producing a, another American Godzilla film.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you don't know, with the right talent behind it, yeah. you know, anyone with yeah. talent... With talent and integrity, and uh, and and also respect to the material, which wasn't wasn't none of that was factored into the Roland and Emmerich film at all. None of that was factored. They had no respect for the subject. They don't have to worship it. I'm not sure. You know, I'm a fan, but you don't have to worship it. All you have to do is respect the original material, Mm. and that doesn't mean bending to fan whim. It just means just liking the original material
1: Mm.
0: and going with what made that original material stand out as a classic and continue for 55 years. You know, that's all you have to do. You have to go like, this is what works, this is what makes these kind of monster pictures work and they also have to make sure that the monster looks like the monster.
2: (laughs) Um, I want to briefly go over your thoughts on the subsequent two Godzilla eras, um, and if you thought they ever uh, Showed any promise akin to the first series of films that ran until 1975 so uh, Speaking of the reboot in 1984-85 uh, the series mm-hmm. of movies that continued into the 90s uh, Overall, do you think that they showed promise or it it showed a fa- it showed a genre that had faded in actuality?
0: Well, I'm not sure if it exactly had faded. Um... But, uh, you know, as I think by this time, Toho had become a corporation, you know, it really went from a movie studio, uh, especially when it it started breaking up into uh, subsidiaries in the the early 70s, and it really had turned into just uh, just a big corporation where, you know, everything was decided uh, by trends, Mm. uh, similar to, you know, United States in, in terms of the way motion pictures and... And television shows produced. In fact, uh, it was interesting that uh, you know Godzilla '84 uh, was Toho had some delusion that it was it was being released at the same time uh, in in December of 1984 that uh, Gremlins and Ghostbusters were opening in Japan.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And traditionally, you know, American comedies don't do very well in Japan. Even films that are huge big hits in the United States, because the humor doesn't translate always. Mm. Uh, but Ghostbusters was the first time an American comedy film was a huge hit. And Gremlins was a huge hit. And Toho had these delusions that Godzilla was going to crush both of them. <laughs> the Godzilla 84, Return of Godzilla. Mm. Um, it didn't quite do that. It did less than Toho expected. But if it had just been released by itself and had you know no competition and made the same amount of money... Toho would have been very happy with it. Mm. They went ahead and uh, announced a Godzilla 2, so it had to have done well.
1: Yeah.
0: And then what happened was, in, ninth, in uh, I believe it was in 86, uh, as they were still developing, they didn't want to rush into another film. They were, they were scouting ideas and wanted to get the best ideas they could for the next picture. Um, King Kong Lives was released in Japan mm. and failed miserably at the box office. And Toho said, nobody wants to see big monster pictures. Nobody wants to see giant monster pictures, so we're canceling Godzilla 2. Mm. I was at Toho's offices in 85 uh, when I lived in, in Tokyo, and I saw the announcement for Godzilla 2, and I pointed it on the wall, and I said, wow, you guys are really going to do it? And they right, were hoping on making this you know, next year, mm. you know, 86. <clears throat> of course, it didn't happen. And, uh, and King Kong King Kong killed Godzilla that time. <laughs> and so Toho was very f- afraid. They started becoming this company, like uh, su- uh, A.G. Tsuburaya's company, Tsuburaya Productions, became very scared about spending money and losing money. Mm. And so, you know, it was very tenuous that any Jap... I think the lowest period was probably that period in the 80s. You know, where anime ruled, and there was, you know, they only produced one Godzilla picture, and it was, by the time it came out in 84, it already had been in development since 1977. Really? That picture was in development since 77, 78, and didn't get, finally got produced in 84. (laughs) And then they got Cold Feet in 86, and then they finally just, you know, because, mostly because of Fan Outcry is, is one of the reasons why they produced 84, Mm-hmm. Span Outcry and Toho did the previous year in 83 they did this Godzilla festival uh, a retrospective of all the older films and that became a huge hit lines around the block mm-hmm. and that was the reason why they greenlighted doing Godzilla 84 uh, so they get this cold feet and in 1989 you know the fans are clamoring you know hey you know we have to we want another Godzilla picture you know finally they do Biolante. um you know, and I think most of the works that came out were fairly uneven. You know, it was, you were excited that a new Wolf film was coming out, and, you know, you watched it, and you were excited while you were watching it, wow, this is a new movie. Mm. You know, looking back, I think they were trying to satisfy too many people at the same time. Right. And they lost sight of just making a good movie. Not that any of them are bad, but their heart wasn't into it because they were trying to satisfy demographics. Mm. And, you know, looking back at, at them, they're not as well made as the films that were made by Honda. Wow. They just don't have that, they don't have that quality, even though they got Ifa Kube to come and do the scores, which helps immensely.
1: Mm.
0: You know, um, I feel personally, even, you know, that his scores weren't as good as his older scores. That's just my personal opinion. Mm. But I just felt that we got into a stagnant area where everybody was afraid to do anything because Toho was only making these newer Godzilla pictures. They were the other studios didn't have the kind of money or power Toho had at the time, and uh, and uh, the owner of uh, at the then owner of Dai Motion Picture Company, uh, Tokumasa, uh, what's his name, uh, Tokuba Shoten Publishing Company's president, who had bought the company back in '74. Hmm. Uh, he always wanted Gamera to come back. So they had planned to do a short film for children that would be about an hour long. That would be like the friendly, happy Gamera friend to Mm -hmm. children. And uh, Kaneko, this director who had been trying to get a couple different projects off the ground at Toho and wanted to do a Godzilla film for Toho and bring something new to the table, was finding a lot of frustration. He went to Diane and said, let me make this movie, but it's gonna—it's got to be a movie that is—that I want to make. Mm. And uh, you know, he did a good sales pitch to them and brought in a team of really great guys, and they turned out, as as everyone knows who's into this stuff, that Gamera Guardian of the Universe, which just took everybody by surprise, mm. because you know a lot of people outside of Japan and some people inside of Japan, but Gamers kind of loved alongside of Godzilla. Mm. More and in maybe outside of Japan, people just consider you know Gamera kind of Godzilla's you know cheaper cousin, <laughs> but uh, you know they they, they kind of missed you know the, the, the whole point of, of Gamera in the first place. But with that being said, uh, you know, Gamera Guardian the Universe comes out, you know, sideswipes everybody, they don't really they see it coming that this film about a giant turtle based on a bunch of movies that were made, you know, earlier, uh, that, uh, you know, were more aimed towards children than the Godzilla pictures and considered lesser than the Toho pictures, were better than what Toho was producing, because Toho did had no competition. You know, when they were producing, you know, Godzilla vs. Mothra in 92 and, uh, and, and and 93 with the Mechagodzilla, and, and they had no competition. And plus, Toho was just going through the motions because they had already sold the rights to you know, uh, Sony for the American picture, mm. which was originally supposed to come out, like, in, uh, in
1: 1984.
0: Uh-huh. And so Toho was going to kill off Godzilla in the Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 93. And then when TriStar Columbia said, that, you know, John DeBont walked, he's not going to do it, they said, okay, we'll produce a couple more pictures until TriStar's ready to do theirs.
1: Mm.
0: <laughs> but they were just kind of going through the motions. And mostly a lot of it was being done for licensing and, you know, for toys and all that stuff. A lot of the, the, the associated products were sold better than the movies in the 90s. Of course, like any company anywhere, like the, even the American films, you know, uh, sometimes they, when they sell them overseas, that's where they make a lot more money mm. on, on these pictures, just selling the rights to foreign distributors. But, uh, you know, the 1990s Godzilla pictures you know, to me, are kind of hard to watch. Uh, There's too much, like, playing up. Like, you know, we were talking about the problem with, you know, the uh, too many bad jokes, like the Chris Tucker-type stuff and Mm -hmm. derivative stuff used from other movies and, you know, referencing. You know, you had, like, the referencing to, like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and all these very obvious jokes and the one character in Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah saying, make my day,
1: Mm.
0: in English... (laughs) You know, uh, and, and and these kind of things where you're going like, are, you know, are they, you know, really making a movie or are they just making something to make them laugh? Mm. You know, not that they're supposed to make a serious movie, but, you know, let's make a fun. It's What Honda and Subaru did is they made fun and entertainment,
1: mm.
0: you know, uh, but they weren't being pretentious. And I think a lot of the 90s films are kind of pretentious. A couple of the filmmakers probably were embarrassed to be working on these you know thinking oh i could be making better pictures i wish i was kurosawa <laughs> you know or or that they were just having so much fun they were just betraying their the audience yeah in a way you know so they were fun at the time when you watched them in retrospect you know i i really don't dig them that much anymore uh, especially if the gamera films came in and just bold you know bulldozed the competition right there mm. and toho couldn't compete with that and especially with Gamera 3. Uh, Gamera 2 uh, probably is the most satisfying to a kaiju fan. Mm-hmm. Um, Kaneko, the director, was a huge, huge, huge fan of Ultra Q growing up. When he was a child, he saw Ultra Q, the A.G. Tsuburaya show. And that movie feels a lot like it has the same dynamic with the characters investigating this mystery, and the mystery unfolds, and it involves monsters. Mm. Um, the third film, though, I think is the most mature of the three, and also has the most perfect synthesis of the traditional Japanese uh, tokusatsu or uh, special effects and the kaiju suit monster acting, and 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 blending seamlessly with real settings through CGI. Mm. Uh, not necessarily CGI, but but you know computer uh, compositing. Yeah, and CGI. And I really have to say that, you know, uh, that film, if, you, if anyone wants to laugh at a Japanese monster movie or just considers them all oh, those old things with the wires and, the you know, the guy in the costume, <clears throat> and you tell them that they're still making these pictures today and they're going, oh, God, are they still as bad?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, there are those independent productions that are very low budget and they don't look, you know, they look about like they were made in 19... 19- 60 Mm. but you show them gamma three and their jaws hit the floor wow you know it played it had its premiere in the united states in hollywood with the director in attendance and back in 99 and i was there i helped Mm. arrange the screening cool uh at the egyptian theater in in los angeles it was uh, during a godzilla convention that was in town right uh and uh, kaneko was a guest there but he said i'm going to bring this film where can we show it anyway we had the theater packed, you know, uh, the Egyptian Theater, uh, which is part of the American Cinema Tech, and they do a lot of great showings. They did like a, you know, they do screenings of horror, science fiction films all the time, and bring because because they're, they're in Hollywood, they're able to bring the actors, writers, directors, and stars to these. Mm. So you know, I mean, how many people can say they saw *Planet of the Apes* with Charlton Heston talking about it? Yeah. You know, they would do these kind of shows, so they were very open. When I called them and said we have, you know, the director. Uh, Kaneko wants to come and screen Gamera Three. They said, "When <laughs> <laughs> we have to have this screening, we have to have this screening." So they publicized the hell out of the screening. Plus, you had like, you know, about uh, you know, you had about a thousand Japanese monster movie fans in LA from all over the country, and some people from foreign countries in in Burbank, right outside of Los Angeles, for this convention, this Godzilla convention. Huh. So the, the theater was packed. And when the film, there were a couple of special effect sequences where the audience jumped to their feet and applauded. Wow. And I have not seen that since the original Star Wars. And, uh, and the director was there. And, and one of the scenes they applauded is when there was this big fight in the Shibuya district, in the, probably in the middle of the picture, and is fighting one of the flying monsters, the, the Gauss. And uh, there's, you know, Ga- Gamera is throwing these volley of fireballs out of his mouth at the Gauss, trying to blast it out of the sky. And one of them hits, this, hits the ground and starts blowing everything up. And you're on ground-level POV, and people start flying in the air in this ball of fire.
1: Yeah.
0: And everyone stood to their feet and cheered. And, and the director, Kaneko, went, why are they cheering the death of thousands of people? <laughs> and, and, and he had to be explained that in America, people, they're applauding the effect scene, not the death of yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> they just thought the effect scene was awesome. So that, he was like, oh. An interesting thing, too, was the director of the original Gamera films, Noriaki Iwasa, who who helped create the character of Gamera, was also there at the screening. He was at the con- same convention. Mm. Uh, being honored uh, and and uh he hated it <laughs> Really? he hated Gamera three and go that's not he goes he goes that's not gamma you know he's like gamma is supposed to protect people not kill them you know he's supposed to save them not allow them to be killed mm. but uh you know he and the he and uh, and, and mr Kaneko had a long conversation <laughs> uh, you know outside of the theater uh, after the movie was over um but that was you know I mean that Ten years ago that happened, and, you know, I thought that, you know, if this film could get bigger distribution, that, that a lot of people would be, you know, uh, convinced that, you know, these kind of pictures would appeal to a bigger audience. Because, But nobody got to hear it. Nobody got to see it, I mean, and, and it wasn't really distributed widely. Mm. Uh, it was released, you know, to video. It played... Theatrically in small cities, in, in rep- repertory houses, maybe even, even it was in bigger repertory theaters, but you know, this wasn't a wide mainstream you know, release. It was the same print that you could just rent wherever you lived in the United States, whatever theater you worked for. If you knew it was out there, you could book it in your theater. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and they also made the other two Gamera films available. So they got kind of this culty word of mouth. I went to one screening, and there were people from Pixar and ILM. They were wearing their jackets. <laughs> like, oh ILM jacket Pixar jacket you know and these people were all talking about the effects so it was like ah oh, they came but you know if more people saw like a film like that unfortunately that I think was a peak uh recently where you know uh, shortly after um that film was made um uh, the uh, owner the the guy who championed Gamera, the the guy who was the owner of of Dae at that point, and the uh, president of the Tokuma Publishing juggernaut, um, he passed away, mm. and so the publishing company uh, decided to eventually sell it, and they sold it to Kadokawa.
2: Is um, is the um, Millennium series, if you will, of Godzilla movies um, uh, worth recommending um, at all? You talked about the Godzilla Final Wars that you were disappointed with that, but uh, right.
0: Well, you know, I felt that um, they were kind of getting back on a track. I was uh, disappointed with Godzilla 2000. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a little too ponderous. It kind of had too much of that feeling that they had with Godzilla 1984. You know, it was just too ponderous. Mm -hmm. And then it went from that to some of the ridiculous stuff that's in that film. Like towards the end, where Godzilla has the exchange with one human character, and yells his name, and Godzilla hits the building, and the guy dies. You know, it's like <laughs> he was a he was a, a jerk of a villain, but Godzilla had to kill him. You know, nobody else in the picture. You know, why did the guy have to die? You know, he was a jerk. You know, and it was just kind of a little too ridiculous. Mm. Uh, and like I said, too ponderous of a film. Um, and then with I, I was at the Tokyo International Film Festival for the premiere of. Uh, Megagiris. Uh and that film felt a lot better, but it still felt kind of like it was a TV movie
1: mm.
0: in terms of the dramatic scenes. Um, it had some nice bits with the with the you know the alternate universe type thing with the ro- with the newsreel at the beginning, explaining very succinctly. It was a really great uh, narrative device to to uh, you know get that exposition out of the way that this is set in a different universe. Mm. And even Godzilla 2000, it was disassociating itself with that. Um, and the music score uh, by Michiro Oshima is awesome. The director was Misaki Tezuka, who's a, a fan and actually a talented filmmaker. He did the best. I think he did the best of what he could with that particular film. Hmm. Um, and he handled a couple of the other ones. I kind of prefer Tezuka's films. and uh, But the standout uh, of all of those, of course, was Kaneko's... Uh, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, giant monsters all out at attack. Um,
2: Rolls off the tongue. Yes. Nicely. very
0: Very easily, too. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, he takes what he brought to the table with Gamera. He dishes it out with Godzilla this time. Mm. Um, unfortunately, he had his hands tied a lot by Toho. Um, he didn't want to use Mothra or Ghidorah. His original plan was to use uh, Varan because he felt that was a sorely underused character.
1: Hmm.
0: And uh, to use Angulos. Uh, oh,
3: yeah.
0: uh, from, you know, the first sequel to Godzilla in 1955. He yes. appeared in Destroy All Monsters as well, and other pictures. And I think it's a great character, and that's the screenplay he brought Toho, and Toho said, we can't sell toys of those monsters. Ouch. He goes, Ghidra... And Mothra are the most popular monsters next to Godzilla. You have to make it those two monsters. Or you can't make the picture. So he had his hands tied. Mm-hmm. Now imagine the picture he would have made if he had those two other monsters. You know, So it's not perfect, but Kaneko said he got about uh, 80%, I believe. I might be misquoting him, but he, he believes he, that he got about 80% of what he wanted in that picture. Yeah, um, and uh, then you know, Tezuka returns with uh, with Godzilla against Mechagodzilla, yet another Mechagodzilla film. <laughs> it, but this one is is beautifully photographed. Um, the action scenes, the monster scenes are fantastic. Uh, the storyline is generally good. There's a little distracting subplot with a, a little troubled girl and her weeping grass. I said that weeping grass, this little <laughs> plant that she befriends. It doesn't talk back to her, but it's like a girl who just rather have a plant as a friend than real people. Wow. And that's supposed to kind of like mirror in the pilot of the Mecha Godzilla this this girl who also has had a trouble past. But I think with just that element being the only minus, considering some of the previous pictures that came before it, it's probably the best of a lot Uh. The Kaneko's GMK stands sort of in a class all by itself. Yeah. So it's kind of, you have to take that kind of out of the Millennium Series. That's just, it just stands by itself. Yeah. Uh, and and then you, uh, you know, you have uh, Tokyo SOS, which is a direct sequel to the Mechagodzilla picture. Mm. I felt that it was weaker, you know, and uh, the ending was completely preposterous. But uh, uh, it's still a fun movie, but, you know, it, it's, it's, It's sort of like lesser. Um, And then, of course, you know, they wrap everything up with Final Wars, which, for now, and (laughs) Final Wars, I went to the premiere in Hollywood at the Grauman's Chinese Theater, and uh, I was embarrassed. Really? I was embarrassed by that picture, and I'd seen these previous films, the other Millennium films in the theater, before I saw Godzilla Final Wars, and I see Final Wars in the theater, and I was very embarrassed by it. I just couldn't believe how bad the effects were.
3: Mm.
0: Um, I was saying, like, how can anyone, and this, this is a Hollywood premiere, how is anyone going to take this film seriously? And this was, like, purposely all orchestrated by Ryuhei, Ryuhei Kitamura, the director. He wanted the effects to look like the Godzilla. He, did, he doesn't really like Japanese movies to begin with, if you read any interviews with the guy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He's a fanatic about Australian movies. And uh, action movies from America during the '80s, mm. and that's what he grew up with. And one of the things I think his favorite Godzilla movie, the only one that has any kind of special meaning to him, is the 1974 Mechagodzilla film. Right, right. And uh, you know, he even has said in, in quote, in you know, in, in interviews that Japanese movies are trash. You know, no so gosh. he has no respect for Japanese cinema to begin with. So how is he going to have respect for this character in any way, shape, or form? Well, you know, he does this film, and he has contempt for the subject matter. I believe he has contempt for the subject matter. And he's, Toho's throwing all this money because he's being touted as the next big thing. He's got a deal signed with Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. So, you know, everyone's thinking he's going to leave Japan and become this big director, then Toho can have this film that's directed by him to sell internationally. You know, of course, he becomes a big nothing, in the United States, so mm-hmm. far.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Directing, uh, you know, Midnight Me Train, which doesn't get theatrical dis- distribution in the United States, and Lionsgate almost buries the film. It goes direct to video.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and uh, unfortunately, you know, it's like I met the man in person. He wasn't very nice. Um, and uh, I was going, hey, I like your movies. And he was just saying, yeah, okay, thanks. You know, so I got a bad experience before I saw of Final Wars. Yeah but I didn't carry that with me in the theater. I was hoping he was going to make a good, fun picture.
1: Um,
0: It seemed like every one of his films, um, I would like one, and the next film that would come out, I would hate, and the next film he would make, I would like, and the next one I would hate. And it had this (laughs) pattern, like, you know, I liked the verses. I didn't didn't think it was like the second coming, like a lot of fans, you know, movie fans thought, or action Mm -hmm. movie fans, or zombie movie fans thought. I just thought it was a fun movie. It's derivative, it's evil dead, my living dead, you know, and a rip-off of every Hong Kong movie ever made with zombies. Yeah. No. <laughs> but, but, and gunplay, and gun you know, but, uh, you know, it was fun. It was entertaining, popcorn picture, you know, and it was fun. It was one of those movies you see and go, hey, have you seen this? This is crazy. It's fun. Mm-hmm. And then he did a live, which I saw at a film festival, and I hated it. mm I just absolutely hate it alive. And it, we had this kind of pattern. So, you know, he did a Zoomy, which I really loved at first. Uh, it's a very, very long picture, but it's, uh, it's, it's really beautifully made. I still think it's beautifully made. Mm. But um, in terms of photography and editing and, and camera work is just amazing. And some of the fight scenes and the choreography, uh, you know, all in conjunction with that is, is really, really nice. Um, but Final Wars was just sort of like, where did he come up with this? You know, his whole attitude was, you know, that uh, he wanted to make it look like a 1970s Godzilla film. Mm. And Toho had given him carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. Now, a couple of years earlier, like I said, they tied Kadeko's hands and said, "You can't use Mothra and Ghidra. You know, you have to use Mothra and Ghidra, or you don't make this picture." Mm. And it was made for a much smaller budget than Final Wars, and it looks a thousand times better than Final Wars, and it's a much better picture than Final Wars will ever be. I don't care. You know, how many, you know, adolescent Godzilla fans out there that like it <laughs> love Final Wars just because it's mon every monster's in it. That's, you know, you could say the same thing about, like, you know, Universal's House of Frankenstein or House of Dracula.
1: Mm.
0: You know, yeah, they've got every monster in them, but they're not good pictures. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: You know? So, uh, you know, more doesn't necessarily mean better. And Final Wars was just dreadful. Mm. In fact, I saw it one time, and... As you know, talking to me over this period of time, we've been chatting with mostly me talking. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. (laughs) Um, You know, I obviously love this stuff, you know, uh, or I'm crazy about it, or I'm just insane. But after that picture ended in the theater, I sat there and said, I'd never want to see this movie again. Mm. Um, I have not seen it since the premiere. I don't want to look at it. People say, well, why don't you watch it again? Because then you might find something in it you like. Because I found some other stuff in it I like. I go, I said I'm not going to see that. That movie was an insult. To me. Mm. You know, it's personally insulting to me. I don't care. People can love it all they want. I'm not going to say that they're an idiot or stupid. Or, you know, some critics will say things like, if you like this movie, you're a moron. And we all know that's untrue. Because then no one would ever understand the wonders of Plan 9 from outer space.
2: Indeed. Indeed
0: you know but I saw the film I don't need to see it again I'd much rather watch Deidre the Three-Headed Monster 350 times than co- <laughs> seeing half of Final Wars in a row 350 times yeah. put it in the DVD player and I'll have to watch it for you know like six months straight <laughs> the only movie I can watch is Deidre the Three-Headed Monster I would be happy I would be in heaven Final Wars if I never see it again I'm not missing anything mm. <laughs> Nothing can save that film. You know, I want to thank you for uh, you know inviting me on the show, and uh, you know it's an honor. Um, I, you can tell I really like talking about this stuff. <laughs> and uh, you know, if anybody hasn't hasn't seen it, um, there's the uh, Eiji Tsuburaya biography, which is the first biography in a uh, language other than Japanese, uh, uh, produced and uh, released by Chronicle Books. Uh, It's available on Amazon.com throughout the world. Um, And I have a blog, which is called The Good, The Bad, and Godzilla. Uh, And it's not all about Godzilla. It's about whatever I think is interesting at the moment uh, in uh, movies. And, you know, I have everything in there from birthday salutations to uh, Bella Lugosi to, uh, you know, uh, essays on the Godzilla films or news on new products that are coming out of Japan or things that I think are cool. Um, and, you know, I'm going to continue doing some more stuff. I've worked on a bunch of uh, DVDs uh, for a number of companies um, in, uh, in the United States uh, that are Japanese monster, superhero-related. Uh, some of them are available from GenerationKikaida.com. And those are the Toei 70 superhero shows Kikaida, Kikaida 01, Common Rider V3, and Inazuman. They're all out on DVD with English subtitles. I was involved with all of those. Uh, products and writing liner notes and subtitle scripts. Uh, There's other products out there like Iron King and uh, Super Robot Red Baron uh, that were released by the now defunct BCI. Mm. Um, But they're still floating out there, so you might want to pick those up. A lot of fun, lots of crazy monster bashing, Japanese 70s fun. Um, And uh, currently working on a big project uh, for 2010, um, it's a multi-film series, I can't tell you what it is right now, but stay tuned. I'm not contractually obligated to say what it is, but, uh, these are films that are going to be released in the United States over the course of the next year on DVD. Um, I'm the special features producer, and, uh, we're going to try to get as much cool stuff on these, uh, series of DVDs as we can. There, I think there's nine films total. But, uh, that'll keep me busy all the way till, like, January of 2011. <laughs> so uh, you know um, that's what I'm up to I, I, I thank you for inviting me on the show it's uh, it's been fun <laughs>